Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. As we approach another election, the political rancor surrounding us is quickly ratcheting up. The battle lines are once again drawn, and I hear declarations that this is the most important election in history. Maybe that's true, but this election certainly has some rivals. At least that's what historians who have a longer view than the news cycle tell us. Likewise, this pandemic is too often billed as unprecedented, as though the world's never been through a great plague or even a pandemic which is remarkable since the last one of this magnitude only occurred about 100 years ago. It certainly means it isn't that common, but it isn't by any means unprecedented. So what is something that was truly unprecedented? Well, what's unprecedented is a person who was born blind having their sight restored. Most often when someone is born with a problem like blindness, the underlying problem is not something easily restored even by modern medicine. Because most often, something didn't form right in the womb. And although doctors can move things around, reshape things through surgery, or give medicines to get things working again that are malfunctioning, we even today generally lack the skill or technology to restore or rebuild something that our bodies didn't make right in the first place. This is even more the case with the most complex organs like our brain and our eyes. So is it any wonder when Jesus heals the man born blind in St. John's Gospel, chapter 9, that as the man testifies before the Pharisees, he proclaims nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man, that being Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. But by what approach did Jesus achieve that remarkable healing? Well, St. John tells us that he made some mud with his own saliva and put it on the man's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which which John tells us means sent. When the man did so, he came home seeing. And I'm sure that you're now beginning to see some similarities with today's gospel that we just heard. And that also remarkable story told today by St. Mark, we hear about the healing of a man who is deaf and mute. Although St. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels, he interestingly preserves additional details about stories and parables, even if they are contained in one or more of the other gospels. And sometimes, as in this case, St. Mark is the only one to tell the story. Now, St. Matthew tells us of healing of those who were lame, blind, mute, maimed by Jesus during his ministry, but only St. Mark tells us about the miracle of the man who was deaf and had this impediment of speech. So, here we have this man who is deaf, can't hear, and also cannot speak well. And I don't think these are separate problems, but rather the combination tells us something, that this man was very likely uh, had this problem from birth or early age. As I'm sure you all know, hearing loss causes difficulties with the development of our ability to speak. 
and people who are deaf uh, cannot hear others or even their own voice. And we self-regulate as we, as we um, learn to speak. And that's very important to the process of developing language. So because they're unable to hear th their own voice and other people's language, even if they develop, deaf people develop the ability to speak, it's unusual for their speech to be normal. And in fact, this is one of the reasons today that physicians screen children at young ages to determine if they can hear so that one can intervene early. If possible, perhaps with cochlear implants to restore not only uh, their, their present hearing, but future speech. And in fact, if you don't catch them early enough, you can still put the cochlear implants in, but their speech will never return to normal. So I think this is also a remarkable story of someone being healed with a serious condition present since their birth. And of course, Jesus didn't need some kind of thirty dollars to $50,000 procedure like a cochlear implant in order to do it. No, he simply needed the power of God, his touch, and his spit. Jesus' spit. Well, that's the second time Jesus' spit has come up in the healings we're discussing today. And in fact, there's a third instance when Jesus uses his spit later in Mark to heal another blind man in Bethsaida. So I want you to think about this for a moment. I mean, in retrospect, forget for a moment about who you know Jesus to be and imagine someone spits on some dirt and wants to rub it on your eyes or licks their fingers before putting, it, putting them in your mouth. Uh, even absent uh, this sounding like a terrible idea right now in the midst of a pandemic, it sounds pretty gross, right? I guess the blind men had the advantage of not seeing how the sausage was made, but more seriously, what is this all about? Well, some have liked to draw a creation analogy, at least for the man born blind, since in, Jesus, in Genesis it tells us that God formed man from the dust of the earth, and we presume that he must have needed some liquid around to make clay in which to shape us, but that's not what it says. Genesis 2-7 merely says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Maybe there was spit involved, but it sounds like just breath is all we really have to count on there. And anyway, at that point, how exactly could God spit? So to me, there's more a more important part of that story. In our stories, in the stories we're talking about today, God can spit. Why? Because he's incarnate. He is a real flesh and blood human being. He has the parts we like, like our face that we tend to share with others all the time. And he has spit, which we tend to be a little bit more selective about sharing. And these miracles remind us that Jesus was indeed a human being like us, not some sort of spirit being that merely appeared to be human, but in every way was like us. And in using his spit rather than some water out of the nearest jug, Jesus is also lending a sort of intimacy to these healings as he does throughout use of his touch and the other ways he interacts with people. As described in St. James' epistle, the Orthodox Church continues to practice the laying upon of hands for healing because that touch is important. It's not just an ancillary feature of being healed by God. However, there isn't just a declaration of Jesus' humanity here. It, 
but also that he's the Messiah. And even more remarkably, it turns out, of his divinity. In the Babylonian Talmud, the Talmud are these central texts of rabbinic Judaism. They're sort of like where the written interpretations of the Bible and all the laws were. It actually was a primary source of Jewish religious law and theology. So much so that it served really as a guide for the daily life of the Jews. And in, that, in the Talmud, it says, it's noted that the spit of the firstborn of a father is healing. Now, while the Talmud was not completely codified and written down until possibly or probably the 4th or 5th century, this suggests that this view was still likely held at the time of Jesus. And regardless, there were certainly views that the saliva of distinguished persons could heal even amongst the Gentiles. For example, the Roman emperor Vespasian reportedly healed a blind man by spitting on his eyes. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the contemporary reports of this miracle performed by Vespasian, who wasn't yet the emperor, have quite a few inconsistencies between them. And this supposedly took place while he, along with others, were heavily jockeying to become the emperor following Nero's suicide, suggesting it probably didn't actually happen, but was merely a first-century political advertisement. Yet, not only does this rumor about Vespasian tell us something about the historical view of spit, I think Mark was up to something here. Mark would have been writing his gospel, actually, about the time these stories were circulating. So I think that Mark's inclusion of these specific details of the stories about how Jesus actually healed people using spit was particularly intentional. In fact, I think Mark was directly spitting in the eye, so to speak, of the Roman emperor by recounting these stories of Jesus healing people, yet unlike Vespasian, asking people to keep the miracle to themselves, seeking no personal gain from it. So Mark is portraying Jesus to the Gentiles as the one who is rightfully worthy to be the emperor. Take that, Vespasian. And at the same time, Mark is showing to the Jews that Jesus is the distinguished firstborn of his father, who Jesus tells us is in heaven. And when John the Baptist has his doubts about Jesus, Jesus tells them to report to him that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. That is, the thing that were pro those things that were prophesied that the Messiah would do. For example, take a look at Isaiah 35.5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So despite Peter and his Jewish contemporaries' concern about whether anything good could come out of Nazareth, Mark is showing that not only can something good come, but that good itself came out of Nazareth. So this miracle isn't simply told in the Bible for us to be amazed. After all, we know that Jesus didn't heal everyone of every infirmity everywhere. The miracle is thus there to convey a message to us, to those who hear about it. And what's that message? It's the message that Jesus and his church, as his body, 
wants to open our ears, open our eyes, and loosen our tongues, not just in a physical, but in a spiritual way. But this miracle also tells us that this will not happen virtually. It specifically emphasizes and highlights the use of physical touch and physical matter in the process of Jesus' healing. That isn't just for show. The description of the miracle tells us, of all of Jesus' miracles essentially, tell us how others were brought physically before Jesus, including this person who was deaf and mute. They didn't come and ask Jesus if he could heal them from a distance. We recall that even the centurion didn't expect Jesus to heal his servant from a distance. He asked Jesus to please come to his servant's side. And yet in that rare case, Jesus did heal someone from a distance. Yet let us not miss the fact that the centurion still had to come and interact physically with Jesus. And it was the centurion's faith in that context of being in the physical presence of Jesus that led to the healing of his servant. So can, can God heal people by us just praying directly to him? Well, I have no doubt. But if we look at the Bible from the beginning to the end, we see that generally God heals people through his agents, the prophets and priests of the Old Testament. And we see the same in the New Testament. It is the hands and feet of Jesus, especially his appointees, the apostles, the elders, etc., that convey his healing in a physical way. The church continues this. You see us use physical matter to heal and save you in so many ways from the holy water to the icons to the oils. In fact, you hear something from this miracle in some of the most important church services that each church member takes part in. What are those? The baptism and confirmation, the baptism and chrismation services. In them, right after the exorcisms, the priest takes with his thumb of saliva of his mouth and touches the ears and nostrils of the person. While touching his or her right and left ears, he then says separately to each ear, Ephrata, that is, be opened. And then touching the nostrils, saying, For an odor of sweetness, and thou, devil, flee away, for the judgment of God draws not. Let us all recall that moment when we took part in that miracle that happened right here in this church or another church, and let us pray for our catechumens who will finally, soon, be taking part in that very miracle right here, God willing. But the problem is that our world is increasingly making it easier to avoid interacting with each other physically. And this has been rapidly accelerated by the pandemic. Some of us have likely become quite comfortable in our homes, avoiding interactions with others. And to you, I merely remind you of something I'm sure you already know that watching a live stream of a church service can't go on forever. I know many of you are online there because you are in high-risk groups or are shut in by a medical condition. And I must encourage you to continue to stay home and avail yourselves of the opportunities, thank God, that we have for being able to interact as best as one can during these challenging times. But we have to recognize that it is deficient. It isn't the way it's supposed to be. And if we fall into believing that we can tell a church just as effectively as we tell a work, then the devil has scored another victory. So for those of you who may be watching this from home, don't forget to avail yourself of the opportunity for a pastoral visit to receive 
the physical sacraments of the church. Each of them has physical elements to it because that is the way God ordained it. We see that plainly as we read the Bible. We must eat of the flesh and blood of our Lord for sustenance in our spiritual journey. We don't believe the Eucharist to be a mere symbol of our faith, but life-giving food. We all must work to resist our laziness that leads us to say it isn't really necessary to get up on Sunday morning and physically gather as the people of God, which has been promoted by this culture. The church simply cannot be an online-only experience. We must also recognize that although we appear to be more connected than ever, things show that we're feeling more and more isolated than ever. And by interacting primarily or even substantially with the digital world, we are actually only connected to our own self-serving, prideful bubble. We're not forced to interact with those differing opinions on a regular basis of our neighbors and to even realize that we have neighbors. We begin to see those folks not as flesh and blood like us, but something unreal, something virtual and anonymous. So thus, I urge you, before you post that scathing comment online, remember, there's a person on the other side. And not just that person, but other people reading it. I couldn't help but be brought to tears listening to the young woman who felt so alone as she struggled with a decision to seek an abortion in the third episode of Deegan Adams Roberts' series, in the name of choice, which I posted to our page earlier this week. Please watch it. Please watch the series. It's well worth your time. I couldn't help but feel her pain. And she talked about her struggle. And one of the things that most stuck with me was that she didn't know who was going to say to her that she mattered, that she and her baby mattered. Because the only thing, she said, that was going through her mind was all those pro-life people with their signs. And what those signs had on them may have been true, but it didn't convey love to others, and especially to her. So rather than connecting her to a loving community that would support her during a difficult time, whatever she chose, and that's not to say that abortion is anything but the terrible sin it is. We all are sinners, aren't we? And the church is the hospital for sinners. And instead, she was pushed away, made to feel alone, more disconnected by that. So as a Christian, don't forget your responsibility as we approach this upcoming election with all its rancor that I mentioned in my opening statements today. Think before you dash off a quick retort on social media or before you even like someone's comment. Ask yourself, not, not only does this speak the truth, which matters, but does it do so in love? St. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15 that by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So you may be speaking the truth, but that's only half of what you have to do as Christians. If you want to grow 
more into being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, does this post I'm about to endorse, even if true, build community? Does this open one's eyes and ears in a way that builds community and brings people closer to God? Is it the odor of sweetness or of that of rotting corpses from the pit of hell? Is your tongue loosened to speak the truth and love of God? What you do in these moments matters, my brothers and sisters. People, many of who do not even go to church but are in dire need of its foundation, community, and loving inclusion are watching you, every one of you. Will you open their eyes and their ears to a way that is different from this world? Or will you merely shut them down, push them away, and close their ears so they won't even be able to hear the loving word of God, such that they'll avert their eyes from the saving cross of Jesus and further retreat into their seemingly safe bubble? Be prudent, my brothers and sisters. What you do in these moments matters more than you realize. So go forth and make everything you do and say Ephrata to those you meet, whether in the marketplace or in cyberspace. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.